Scott Colborough with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Good morning, Lincoln. Good morning, world. How are you? What is in your cup, by the way? I've got some Sulawesi coffee in mine. Hold on here. That's the ticket right there. That's what Daddy wrote home about. Okay. We've got a great show this morning. We're going to start with Charlene with Pet Talk. Now, Jim Preston Dennett is on assignment, so he won't I, be with I us today. That. He's doing a special event called Contact in the Desert. Scott, you don't have your headphones on. And uh, so he'll be back next month with us. But he's one of the featured speakers mm-hmm. at Contact in the Desert. And, uh, Sounds like a lot of fun. He had been collecting this last month a bunch of stories. And as much as he was interested in doing Contact in the Desert, mm-hmm. he said, darn it, I've got so many good stories to share. <laughs> so we always appreciate uh, Preston and his stories. He seems to collect those from people around the world about ETs and UFOs and but all is not lost because we've got a special show for you with our main guest, Paul Blake Smith. Now, I find it interesting, Jim, that last week we did the Roswell crash, if you will, with Dennis mm-hmm. Balthauser. What if there were crashes that were before the 1947 Roswell crash? Okay, what if? So, postulating that... Mm-hmm. That's our premise today with Paul Blake Smith. Outside the sleepy little town of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, in April of 1941, we have an event that could have started a lot of things in motion that later on we see perhaps reflected in part of the recovery efforts at Roswell. It should be very interesting. Paul Blake Smith, author of two books, um, MO41, the bombshell before Roswell. Great picture there of FDR on there. And three presidents, two accidents, more Missouri 41 UFO crash data and surprises. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Okay, well, you gave me a fan for the board here. Yes. You jokester, you. Your, your biggest fan. So hopefully the, the phone... <laughs> is going to work today. We've got a module overheating here, but um, I can't breathe on it, Jim, because that'll just add more hot air, won't it? Yeah, well, we don't want that. Okay, well, let's go ahead, as uh, Ed would say, and start the shoe with Colleen. Well, we could well, do a Colleen also, but let's, let's could, do Charlene. Yeah, let's do Charlene. With the Capital Humane Society, with the uh, miracle of all the buttons being pushed, she should be right there. Good morning. Good morning, Charlene. How's it going today? It's going really well. How about you? Oh, really well so far. Uh, what's going on down there this weekend? It's an exciting we our day today. We are having our kitten shower. So it's a really fun event. Um, there'll be adorable kittens available for adoption. There's a raffle. There's um, going to be some games. So please come by. Um, of course, we always need items for our kittens. We have 
uh, hundreds that go into foster care and our, our wonderful foster families appreciate supplies like litter and bedding and food, kitten chow. So um, it's a great day to come by. And we are also having a Give Me a Home adoption special for cats. So cats that are six months or older are just $35 for wow. their adoption fee. What cool. a deal. Yeah. And that covers a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Yes. What exactly is included besides just a cat? <laughs> so all our cats are spayed and neutered. They're microchipped. They've received a number of vaccines. Um, they, if necessary, have gotten their flea and tick treatment and been dewormed if necessary. Um, so you're getting a great cat, and it's a very kind way to acquire an animal. Okay, the microchip is a cool thing. Could you explain that to us? So uh, microchipping is a, a way to ID your animal. We want pets to wear their collar and tags, um, but microchipping is permanent identification, and it's a little chip about the size of a grain of rice, and it's inserted um, under the skin between the shoulders. And if a pet comes in as lost, we're going to scan him or her, and our scanner will pick up the chip uh, radio waves if he has a uh, chip, and then we can match that information into an, a national database and help find that pet his home. Um, it is really important if your pet is microchipped that you're updating the database. So if you switch mm -hmm. cell phones or move, um, be sure that your information in there is current and up to date. Um, but the chip is, will last the pet's lifetime. Okay, that's a real cool thing. Yes. Okay, well, unless Scott has anything to add, I think we've got the cat page loaded up here. Perfect. Um, I've, got, I've got one of the cats I've got a question about. Okay. Uh, you've got your page open there. Arthur looks sad. Oh. oh he does a little bit, doesn't he? Yeah, he looks sort of like... Oh, he took my I'm, toy away. I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm, I know they're out there, that perfect family for me. And I just don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's Poor about Arthur. two and kind of a buff orange tabby, and he is looking for a family that thinks he's awesome. Um, and he is awesome, just yeah. like all the, the wonderful pets yeah. in our adoption program. He looks awesome. Yeah. I've, I've so, always liked the name Arthur. I think that's yeah. a cool name. It's a great name, and he's a great cat and definitely deserves to have a happy picture the next time. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Okay, who's next, my friend? Uh, next we can talk about Crispin, who has a very cute picture. <laughs> Crispin is a four-year-old domestic oh. short hair. Very cute and clever, kind of a uh, just a soft-looking cat, <laughs> ready to be the center of attention. Yep, uh, very regal-looking. Um, that's a great shot of Crispin. Uh-huh. Okay, tell, tell us again the cat special this weekend. So if you adopt a cat that is six months or older, the adoption fee is only $35. Okay, let's keep that in mind, folks. We've got Arthur and Crispin and... Uh, next we have Miley. And Miley is one of our terrific torties. Uh, torties are beautiful cats, and Miley is, no, is definitely adorable. She's about two years old. Uh, ready to find a family that appreciates her charming and curious ways. And and torties will demand your attention, too. Mm -hmm. They yeah. can be very vocal and quite um, outgoing. Yeah, what a pretty kitty. What an expression on Miley's uh, f f face and features there. She's got her ears up, her eyes open wide. It's like, what? 
<laughs> what? You're going to find me a new home? Mm-hmm. Show me that toy again? What? Yeah. <laughs> she has total awareness. A total, a total attention up on all fours, just ready to go. Always fun here, folks, to kind of do as we're doing and look at the, uh, the pages of oh, the yeah. Cats for Adoption. CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And uh, so we've got three great cats. And why don't you, can you pick a fourth one here? Wow. <laughs> so much to choose from. <laughs> I, I'm wondering about Pretty Girl. What's with that look on her face? Oh, yeah, she is pretty. So I think somebody that she knows has taken that picture. It yeah. looks like maybe she wants to crawl up on their shoulder and get a, a little closer, do some purring. She's about 10 yeah. years old. Uh, she was in one of our foster homes, and that she, they said she was a friendly lap cat. Uh, she has mm-hmm. been in a colony with other cats and seems to be doing fine. She's uh, curious and vocal and wants to be your friend. Okay, well, that, that's our uh, a quartet, apparently. A quartet For, of cats. Arthur, Crispin, Miley, and Pretty Girl. And what are hours open today and tomorrow? We will be open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, and folks, don't forget that cat special. One more time, Charlene, what's the cat special? It is a Give Me a Home cat special. So cats that are six months and older are available for adoption with a $35 adoption fee. Very cool. Wow. Okay, this is Charlene, and we're doing Pet Talk, um, the segment where cats and dogs for adoption are talked about. And it's time for Dogs for Adoption. We will start with Boo. And Boo doesn't have a tennis ball in his mouth in this photo, but when you come to the Pylock Pet Adoption Center, he always has a tennis ball in his mouth. He's always ready to play. It's really, really cute. He's seven years old, a boxer pit bull mix, looking for a home with people who love to play fetch because he does. Um, He must meet other dogs and does not care for cats. Um, but if you think he might be perfect for you, we hope you'll consider Boo. Okay, and I, I had a dog many years ago that had that sort of same fixation on balls. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and always carried a, a ball or a, a chew toy around with him. So uh, Boo is our fun first dog. And who's going to follow Boo? Kara. And Kara's a little dog, a little chihuahua mix, about eight years old, a very pretty dog, wants to be your one and only canine, uh, loves attention from people, wants very much to cuddle up on your lap and just be a cherished companion. Uh, looks almost like there's some Shiba Inu in there, too. That's it, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. What an unusual-looking dog. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so we've got Boo and Kara and... Daredevil. And Daredevil is an eight-year-old beagle, and he is blind, but that doesn't slow him down one bit. Uh, He loves to go on walks, loves to explore, and when I asked him to sit, he sat up pretty in his picture. Yeah, he sure did. Yep, yep. So he's a smart dog, ready to find a special family that will take excellent care of him. Okay, special needs for Daredevil, the blind dog, but he's got a lot of life left for that special family. Kara and Boo, these dogs and more pictures are up <clears throat> at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And, Charlene, what are hours open again today and tomorrow? Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? 
Uh, today will be very busy here with the kitten shower going on. It's very exciting. Uh, tomorrow I have off, and so I'll be home doing some uh, yard work and housework and just trying to get caught up. Yay, son! Yes, exactly. We're, so there, there are not actually kittens falling from the sky. <laughs> that's that's just an expression, I think. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, Charlene, thanks so much for all that you do, and my best to all the staff out there. Thank you for everything. Have a great day. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. Jim, we've got a big thank you also to uh, offer our listeners. Yeah, we sure uh, do. We've got that big easel over there that announces that... Um, our listeners helped us raise over $36,000. Over $36,000. For the KZUM Give to Lincoln. Excuse me, Give to Lincoln. There we go. Yeah. I need more coffee. I think so. The KZUM Give to Lincoln fundraiser. And thank you guys and gals for taking part in that. And we wrapped things up yesterday. So y'all, y'all did good. That is pretty awesome. Jim, you're punching away at something there. What are you doing? Well, I was looking at the leaderboard from Give to Lincoln, and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of great organizations on there, and a lot of money was raised. I think, uh, see, Thursday morning when I turned the radio on, KZUM was in the number two slot, and uh, yesterday when I looked at the final leaderboard, we'd been knocked to the number 40 spot mm -hmm. which is really actually <clears throat> awesome for all the other groups that are ahead of us that made a lot of money in the last few days this is apparently and, one of the biggest um give to yeah, events you've ever had I, I think over five million dollars if i remember right our exact total is thirty two thousand four hundred and thirty eight dollars and seventy cents so thank you thank you thank you everyone uh, I'm Scott Colborn, and you are listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We've got uh, Preston Dennett on assignment. He'll be back. And let's see when he's going to come back. He's going to come back the first Saturday of July, July 6th. So next week, we've got Reverend Barry Downing. Uh, back in 1968, he wrote The Bible and Flying Saucers and has been longtime uh, championing the idea that, that theology has got to enter the discussion about UFOs and ETs and extraterrestrials. So um, the book just got re-released and reprinted, and uh, it's going to be a, a huge event. He sent me the, uh, the brand new introduction that he's written, which uh, over the, the years he's had a chance to reflect upon and, and think about and, and uh, ruminate about some things. So uh, he's uh, sent me that. He's got a little bit of a different opinion than Eric Von Doniken. And uh, again, I've, it's a question, uh, I guess, to me, the big question uh, theology that I've been interested in for a long time uh, is, uh, you know, these, these beings from elsewhere, uh, do they worship in a way the same creator uh, perhaps by our name or their name that that we do and what is their concept of theology so I'm more interested in that than if if uh, aliens like strawberry ice cream you know I'm more interested in that so he's next week Barry Downing 
And then we've got a first-time guest in two weeks, Sandra Biskind. She's the co-author with her husband, Daniel, of Code Breaker, Discover the Password to Unlock the Best Version of You. And uh, we've got uh, Jim a surprise. I just got this locked in last night doing some late-night work. Mr. Greg Lawson has got a brand-new book out called How to Be a Paranormal Detective. Uh. And Mr. Lawson's got a lifelong background in law enforcement. So, you know, you and Lloyd Arbach and I, we've talked for a long time about the need for uh, training for people that want to go out and research ghosts and hauntings and spirits they want to call themselves Ghostbusters. They've watched a, a couple TV programs yeah. and bought some equipment, and they want to go out and do this. How do, how you do, how do you do it? What, what kind of training is there? Lloyd's classes, certainly, through the Ryan mm-hmm. Edu- Educational Center, uh, and now this book by Greg Lawson. So we've got him coming up in three weeks, and the book is just hot off the press. I just got it two days ago in the mail, and we just confirmed things last night. So, very, very cool. Um, how are you guys and gals doing out there, by the way? You know, here's a question that I haven't asked you for a while, but what would you like to have us cover? I try to have a range of people on because a lot of you know me as being the UFO guy. And so I try to have a bunch of stuff on. Next week, of course, is UFOs and theology. Two weeks is um, potential code breaker discovering the password to unlock the best version of you. Three weeks from today is going to be some ghosts and hauntings and how to be a paranormal detective. Mm -hmm. What are some subjects that you folks would like to see us investigate? And if you've got a, a website, an email address, a name of an author, a book suggestion, why don't you get that to me? I'm pretty easy to find. I am Jim Shorty. No, I'm not. I'm Scott Colborn. And if you write my name, Scott Colborn, that's C-O-L-B-O-R-N, at the letter I, followed by Nebraska.com, you can send me an email and say, hey, I've been listing for... How long have we been on the air? 34 years? A long time. I've been listening for a long time, and I'd like to suggest bingo. And it may be that we've covered the subject. It may be that we've not. We'd, we'd be really interested in hearing from you. Um, our late friend and colleague, John Keel, was fond of saying that, you know, we all get kind of our pet areas of interest. Mm-hmm. But he said, you know, according to... His research, there are about 2,400 subcategories of the paranormal. So we've got a lot of conversation ahead of us and a lot of great coffee to drink. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, how's your... That's an interesting oh, it's, cup. It's very good. Uh, yeah, I found it in the kitchen. What's the, what's the ink say? Uh, Captain Black Frog's Bedtime Xenophobia. Oh, no, we can't say that on the air. <laughs> A xenophilia, whatever that means. I have my, my chipped Estes Park mug that has mm-hmm. served me well for many years. And uh, looks like the paint is wearing off. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of great coffee in that cup. Mm-hmm. Seems like there was something else. We've talked about the show. We've talked about topics coming up. We'd like to... Hmm. I wonder what else... Something is just on the tip of my tongue. I don't tongue. know. I can't read your mind, Scott. Um, did you do anything special for Memorial Day? Uh, no, just kind of stayed around the house and... Uh, around in my hobbies without being too personal wh- where's your family buried where are they interred at uh, my parents are in Plattsmouth mm-hmm. uh, grandparents up in Butler County uh, Abbey Nebraska to be specific really and uh, that's the a other... fun county by the way to say <laughs> Butler 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 uh, hey, where are you from, Butler? The other side is Richardson County, specifically Dawson, where we have a, a little family cemetery down there. And so we're kind of spread out a little bit. Well, Colleen, God bless her, um, she and I drove down to uh, Superior and Hardy, Nebraska last Monday. And uh, my Volkswagen Tiguan did fantastic. And uh, so we drove down, and uh, we had lunch at uh, the Velvet Rose, Mm -hmm. which was a a real good place to eat. It was the only place open, but lucky for us. And Peggy, one of the the co-owners, she remembered me from a year ago. Oh, very good. How about that? So um, the special was meatloaf and mashed potatoes. I am a meatloaf and mashed potatoes guy. <laughs> they had a big salad bar, so after lunch we went to the uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump, the Evergreen Cemetery, and there's two sides. There's the, the quiet side where a lot of people and families are buried. Then there's the side that pays respect to the people that served in the military. And uh, the uh, Evergreen side uh, on the east side has got a lot of of uh, cedar and pine trees, and it's very shady and and uh, very quiet. So uh, this year I did something different. I was bound and determined to break that habit of buying those gosh darn plastic and silk flowers. You know, I thought to myself, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, I'm not totally green, um, but I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So this year it was kind of interesting. Um, Reverend Ellen Davis and her husband, Reverend Lynn Davis, were, among other places, pastors at the Presbyterian Church in Superior when my dad passed. And so in 1980, they presided over his burial service. So fast forward a number of years, um, Ellen and Lynn moved to Lincoln, became associate pastors uh, at Westminster Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church. And so when my mom died in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2014, once again, they went down to Superior, uh, the goodness of their heart, presided over her internment. So mm-hmm. I went to their yard in Lincoln, and I picked peonies, cut them myself, put them in water, and also to uh, Sue's house, a friend of mine, and I took these gorgeous peonies down to Superior and adorned and decorated the graves down there. Assuming you had permission to take these peonies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, they they were beautiful. We don't um, want to give anyone the wrong idea here. Uh, just beautiful. So yeah. after we got done with Superior, driving through, and I showed Colleen a bunch of the places I remember from being a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, great town. I love Superior. Um, Randy Voppel, if you're out there, I hope your ears are burning because we're talking about you again. He's an old friend of mine. He's, Randy, Randy's another superior person. Yeah, and he's the guy that had the the cool button the, that the, I sent you. The base commander whack for mayor. I vaguely remember that. Vaguely, vaguely remember that. Well, you can refresh your memory on the internet uh, on, on Otis's twelve Otis Twelve's MP3 library for people who are Funny listening. Stuff. Who's Otis Twelve? Otis 12 and his partner, Diver Dan Doomy, were morning DJs on a radio station, an FM station in Omaha for like Z92? a decade. Yeah, and they did these radio parodies that were pretty funny. Yeah, they were very good. And it was it was all original stuff, and uh, uh, I just, I listened religiously every morning. Now, as, as, as did Randy, so... And he, Otis, uh, Otis was also part of a band called Ogden Edsel, which did some songs of, of some note back in the Dr. Demento days, like uh, Dead Puppies is one that a lot of people might know. So I, I didn't get a chance to talk with Randy or hook up with him down there, but uh, we then went to Hardy, and Hardy is um, a, a little town that's almost been forgotten. It's, it's very quiet. It's uh, at the very tail end of its probably lifespan. Mm-hmm. Probably has 150 people, maybe 180 that still live there. Um, and uh, so we decorated the, the Hardy Cemetery, the graves there, uh, and then drove back. And unlike past years, typically I've had thunderstorms that have chased us back. Uh, this year was just fine. Cool. Um, we did have, I think, rain in Superior that night, a big system moved through. But, yeah, speaking of rain, we are all so happy here in Lincoln and southeast and south-central Nebraska that we've had sun because we've had one of the wettest Mays on record. Um, I remarked to Colleen that that cemetery in Hardy, the ground was so wet that you could probably put a spade in the ground, turn it over, and have the hole fill up with water. Mm-hmm. It was just just soaked. And uh, I have a number of friends that are farming that uh, they can't get out in the fields. Yeah. You know, if they get out there, they get their tractors stuck, and when standing water is in the field, it's pretty hard to, to plant. And so it's really thrown a lot of agriculture here in our area of the country for a loop. So this bright sun... We, we are all digging it. We're loving it. In case you folks have wondered, yes, I think the caffeine has probably hit. I think it has, yes. But we've got more great show. This was kind of our attempt to, to fill the slot that Preston left. So we're going to take our bottom of the hour break, and we'll come back with our guest. Who's our guest? Our guest is uh, Paul Blake Smith. And you knew that, didn't you? I knew you? that. I didn't even have to look it up. We're talking about UFO crashes, perhaps one that occurred before the 1947 Roswell crash. How about, try this on for size, Missouri, 1941. We'll be right back.
lovers And this says goodbye He says you know I love you baby in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And Jazz in June, presenting live jazz every Tuesday in June at 7 p.m. at 12th and R Street near the Sheldon Museum of Art. Jazz in June is a family-friendly event for all with a market at 5 p.m. with food vendors, crafts, and more. Details for the season's lineup, VIP seating, and meet and greets at jazzinjune.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney and you guys and gals. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Uh, in case you just joined us, <laughs> probably good because you missed that. <laughs> that ramble that I did. Yeah, I'll take some more coffee. Okay, sure. I think we call that rapping in the radio business. Oh, my God. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> you know, I, I love guitar, and I don't have any, any use at all. Sorry, folks, if you're uh, interested in rap, it's just well, yeah, that's me. A, that's a different kind of rapping. So uh, we've got a great program today. We have Paul Blake Smith on, and Paul makes us home in... Um, I believe Springfield, Missouri, and uh, he is interested and curious, and he's written a number of books. The two that have really captured my interest and are the basis for our discussion this morning is MO41, which of course stands for Missouri 1941, MO41 the bombshell before Roswell. And I don't know if Paul picked that title or who, but that, I just, I love that. Great picture on the front cover uh, of how they used to do the press conferences. That's uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, surrounded by microphones from all the affiliates. And he's making an address on that. 
And then the second book that Jim just took off the counter here, but don't worry, I've got notes here. Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data and Surprises. And Paul, it's great to have you with us. Can we just mention as a teaser, right at the onset, this brand new project and its working title. You've got a brand new book coming out this summer. You are correct, sir. It's called President Eisenhower's Close Encounters. It's the one big blockbuster story I keep reading little tidbits about when I'm mm. researching over the years the Cape Girardeau UFO crash. Mm. And it's the claim, it sounds outrageous, I know, that President Eisenhower was called away from his golf vacation in Palm Springs, California, and he went to Edwards Air Force Base and met some friendly, landed, uh, uh, human-like extraterrestrials. So I thought, where is there a book on this? And I decided... There isn't any. Let's research one of my own. So um, just like the Cape Girardeau story, there was no book on this. And I thought, well, I'll just write it myself. And yes, I did actually help create the cover to the book that you like. Uh, the second book, I had no hand in the, in the cover, whether you like it or dislike it. Uh, that was not my call. <laughs> okay, so you, you won't hurt my feelings if we're not the first, but have you mentioned this Eisenhower book on any other radio station? No, I have not. You are the first. Good. Cool. So the, the working title, as I understand it, is President Eisenhower's Close Encounters. Right. And uh, you... Uh, we, uh, I'm shopping that around, and we'll see if we get a big uh, book deal, and I've got someone who assures me that they've got a Hollywood connection that would be interested in this, but uh, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. It is a tremendous uh, story, and I researched it for years, and I hope it'll be something that captures the UFO fans and history fans' uh, uh, imagination and interest. But um, like you say, uh, the Cape Girardeau book is what we're here for, and I'm pleased to say that here in Springfield, Missouri, we're, we don't have a forecast of rain for a change. I'm sure Yay. you've gotten a little in Nebraska, just a little. Just a and uh, that's where we can tie in uh, the start of the 1941 Cape Girardeau story, actually. Okay, so, uh, Paul, I'd like to have you take yourself back. Um, were you actually from Cape Girardeau? Right. My father was born and raised there, and uh, I was born and raised there in Cape Girardeau, although I don't live there currently. Uh, back in 1941, they were having some problems um, uh, with no river flood wall that there has been uh, since the 1950s. But the Mississippi River would flood quite a bit, as it is right now in Cape, and uh, the water would seep into uh, buildings too close to the river, and one of those was the Red Star Tabernacle uh, Baptist Church, where a Reverend William Huffman was uh, employed, and that's uh, who got the call and how our story starts. When, when you were growing up, um, can you think about the first time that you ever heard anybody talking about this? I had a next-door neighbor who was a Red Star Baptist Church member, and he would talk about, uh, back in the 1970s, UFOs and aliens, and we would look at the sky, and that was about the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, if he mentioned the Cape Girardeau 41 crash, he may have, I 
don't exactly remember a long time ago. Uh, but uh, I first really started hearing about it around the turn of the century, uh, around 1999, 2000. And I thought, well, this is interesting. That's my hometown. I want to hear more. And uh, there would be the occasional mention in a, a UFO TV show or a book and uh, just nothing else. And I thought, wow, this is like the biggest story, the biggest bombshell six years before Roswell, New Mexico, and mm -hmm. it's just totally unexplored. So mm -hmm. uh, the usual story, someone should do something. Well, I'm somebody, so I did something. <laughs> Paul, one of my interests, and I <clears throat> love having you on the week after we've talked to Dennis Balthauser and we've discussed the Roswell crash of 47. One of the reasons why I'm so interested in your work is because uh, over the years, having studied this Roswell crash, it is my, I can't say uninformed, but I'm not an expert, so uh, semi-informed opinion that a lot of the authorities, once things got kicked into gear, were acting as if this wasn't the first crash. Right. They were, they were responding in ways that suggested that there was a, a plan of sorts, there was a, a contingency that had already been discussed and worked out, uh, the way things were deployed, the assets, the immediate uh, cover-up, the lid that came down. And so over the years, it's got me wondering, maybe I'm off base, but maybe if there was this sense of an organization or at least something fairly well thought out prior to Roswell. Of course, my question would be why? Was there an event or events that happened before Roswell that would have then really informed the response for the 1947 Roswell crash? That's right. Uh, I'm not the world's leading expert on Roswell, but I do know that uh, almost every part of the story has an outside Army intelligence team flying into the Roswell Air Force Base and taking over the case, hushing witnesses quickly, boxing up material. Uh, they had all the boxes ready. Uh, they apparently did not have um, uh, some coffins. Someone ordered some baby or child-sized coffins in the Roswell case and were to bring them to the hospital. But... Um, in every other saga you hear from Roswell, this um, Army Intel team seemed to be quite slick and experienced as if they had been through this once before and were prepared. And I can only conclude logically it was from the Cape Girardeau crash of 1941 where they had a learning experience that they could uh, teach and train their Army intelligence officers and get them ready for if this happens again, mm -hmm. and it did. Uh, the the idea that we may have known about this has always made me wonder about how that also informed or changed the ways that we entered into a war footing to fight World War II. <clears throat> we had the the uh, menace, of course, that that the Nazis and their alliance with uh, Japan, um, 
that menace to contend with. But we also had this other thing that was looming that um, would have been uh, uncharted territory, perhaps, nebulous. Um, so enough of me sort of uh, asking questions here. What I'd like to have you do, Paul, is there are so many people that have never heard you on the show before. Um, they've heard us talk about this Cape Girardeau, Missouri crash of 1941. Why don't you set the stage and, and give us a thumbnail sketch of what happened? I will be happy to. If you uh, mention the picture of FDR on the cover of my book, that's him giving a major national broadcast warning about the dangers of possible invasion and keeping alert. And it was scheduled, uh, he set it up for just days after the Cape Girardeau crash. And due to ill health, he was forced to push it back, uh, I believe, uh, a few weeks. Uh, President Roosevelt was not a well man shortly after the UFO crash, I guess just a coincidence. But uh, back in April of 1941, Reverend William Huffman came uh, out of his uh, house and uh, went to a, what he was told was an uh, airplane crash in uh, a farmer's field outside of Cape Girardeau. He was told that there would be um, casualties and people very upset and they needed some spiritual comfort and he was home at night on a Saturday night. It turns out, uh, I looked this up, I went to the house that Reverend Huffman lived in and there was his name and the, uh, the deed and the title of the house from back in 41. He uh, is not a mythical or made-up figure. Uh, Reverend Huffman was brought up from a church in Arkansas the year before because the Red Star Tabernacle was made of wood, and it's rotting because of the uh, flooding Mississippi River over and over during uh, the years leading up to 41, and they needed to raise money to fix up the church, and that was Reverend Huffman's specialty. He was a fundraiser and a morale raiser. He was not on duty that Saturday night, uh, which I feel was the night before Easter services, uh, he was not hired, according to Cape Girardeau newspapers, as a pastor until later in 41. Well, Reverend Huffman went out with um, someone associated with the police department in an unmarked car about 12 or 13 miles outside of Cape Girardeau, and they could see a fire and smoke and the fire department, and they're putting out this blaze, and there is some wreckage, and indeed, there's been a crash. But he was astonished to find there was no wings or propellers. It was a circular metal craft that had been broken open in the center and exploded bits of uh, metallic debris in this field and apparently set it on fire. Uh, the Cape Girardeau police and fire department were said to be there, and uh, apparently military personnel and even the FBI. When I first learned this allegation from uh, uh, interviews of... Uh, Reverend Huffman's granddaughter, who told the tale, I thought, oh, well, I've got her in a, a little slip here. We didn't have any FBI in Cape Girardeau in 1941, but in my research, I found out that we did. They opened an office downtown Cape in the post office uh, because of spies and saboteurs, and we were worried about uh, the heavy German contingent in Cape Girardeau, a lot of German immigrants and farm properties and they had their own uh, church service in German language in Cape Girardeau, and uh, most of them were quite loyal to the United States, but a few were possibly suspected of being loyal to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime in Europe. This was um, several months before the bombing of Pearl Harbor later in 1941, 
but uh, already Roosevelt was warning in speeches that anything could happen. Keep your eyes peeled. We will defend ourselves if necessary. It was felt that it could an attack on America could happen any time. And that's probably something that went through the minds of everyone who arrived at the crash site. Even though it was the heart of the Midwest, their, their first thoughts was, is this the start of some sort of attack? Are the Nazis, uh, that was our main concern, even though Japan attacked us later on, are the Nazis attempting something or running an experiment? But Reverend Huffman said there were no human casualties on the ground, but three small, uh, lifeless, uh, gray aliens with big round heads and black eyes, just creepy like a doll almost, and one of them was actually respirating, his lungs, his chest were moving up and down as they laid on their backs side by side in the uh, grass. He heard someone say that uh, a farmer pulled them out of the craft and laid them out on the grass like this on their backs. Two were dead, and one was just barely living when Reverend Huffman knelt over him to give some prayers, and the creature just uh, stopped. He just uh, apparently died right in front of him. And Reverend Huffman said, I made sure not to touch him. Uh, but two men nearby picked up a dead alien and stretched him out and posed for a photograph from a local photographer who pulled out a small box camera in his uh, pocket, took one picture, and walked away. Uh, it's uh, an old family uh, friend of mine and a distant, distant relative uh, named Garland Fronebarger. Uh, in Cape Girardeau in those days, was known as one-shot Frony. He would often take one photograph and walk away because he didn't like wasting film. So uh, we're fairly sure that uh, this person uh, took uh, the, the photo and then stuck the uh, camera back in his pocket, and that's when some more outsiders arrived. And we can get to that unless uh, we have to take a little break. Should we use that as a teaser? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. So to, to in, uh, encapsulate... You, you know this because Reverend Huffman came back that night. Right. And he had, let's see, his wife. He had um, a, a teenage, was it son that still lived there? Yeah, two, two sons, one of whom died uh, just a couple years later in Europe fighting World War II, and he had a heavily pregnant uh, daughter-in-law all in his house that, uh, that evening. So when he came home that night, he told them the story, and he was quite shaken and upset, uh, understandably. Uh, in, my, in my opening remarks, I said, Paul, that I've been for many, many years interested in the theological implications of contact. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to extend a total uh, a lack of, of thinking and say, okay, because a minister said this, it has to be true. But at the same time, I've got to say, here is a guy that has and I've known a lot of ministers, that has built his life on truth, on helping people understand and see truth. Is there any motivation for him to lie, to hoax, to fabricate 
I researched Reverend Huffman and went to the church, and they let me into a special locked storage area, and I looked over paperwork, and they told me he was a very fine man. Mm-hmm. He was dedicated to converting people to Christianity and performed, um, like, nearly 100 baptisms in his time in Cape Girardeau. Mm-hmm. He would have been in big trouble and risking everything to make up a crazy lie or to be intoxicated or drugged or something and acting weird. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not the case at all. Everyone I've spoken to and heard about uh, that uh, knew anything about the Huffman family. They were most upstanding. They raised money for the church. They were all about church activities, and uh, they were just fine Christian people. Yes, and without denigrating the good people of Missouri at all, it's been my sense that when I've traveled there, uh, especially in the the Springfield area, I've spent uh, several conferences there, that uh, this is a a uh, place where there's a number a number of um, of uh, colleges, a number of schools that are Christian influenced. There's a really heavy influence of that in the community. Um, if I extend that to Cape Girardeau and then go back to 1941, I don't have any reason, Paul to not believe Reverend Huffman. That's correct. Uh, I I feel the same way in researching him. I'm trying to think, is there any way that he could have been mistaken or lying or crazy? But his whole career and his family that he was really supporting in that house in Cape Girardeau in 41, everything was on the line. So he said, I'm going to tell you, my family members, this story, and I'm never going to speak of it again. And apparently he lived up to that word. Mm -hmm. He didn't go around Cape telling the story. It's a Huffman family narrative. No, this, again, I, I want people to understand that this is not a, a dialogue that one would have easily in that setting, let alone back in the year of 1941. We right. simply uh, wouldn't have been talking about it. It wouldn't have been um, appropriate. It wouldn't have been something that would have come up, you know, over, uh, over coffee and donuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what... So, you know, if, if he wasn't hallucinating, lying, um, uh, drunk, uh, mentally aberrant, was there any chance that he was taking part in some sort of an elaborate hoax that was a uh, counterintelligence? You know, I thought about that, Paul, and I, I come up with a zero. What, what? Uh, I would, too, uh, I would point out there's a Cape Girardeau fireman named Walter Reynolds who went to the crash site, uh, and uh, years later he told his grandson when, he, uh, when Walter was dying of cancer, he said, you know this tale of uh, a Cape Girardeau UFO crash? He said, the whole story is true. I was there fighting the fire. Uh, the Army arrived. They told us to put down the debris, and they took all our uh, notes and uh, all the photographs and film and said, you will never speak of this again. This did not happen. And uh, the fireman tried to sneak a piece of debris in his pocket. The Army caught him, and they chewed him out and booted him out of the uh, crash site. And he said, later, I feel my phone was tapped, and I was being watched around town to see if I would uh, extract extract any sort of revenge, if you want in any way, uh, uh, a a phony rigged uh, experiment that people went rushing to this site uh, trying to do their best to help with what mm-hmm. they thought was a plane crash because it was only a mile or two from the Cape Girardeau airport. Mm-hmm. 
This is Paul Blake Smith, and uh, his website with more information is the letters M O numerical four one dot info. That's M O four one dot info. And uh, for folks that are on my email list for the newsletter, I've sent out direct links for uh, both his books, MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, and the direct link to the publisher on that, as well as Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data and Surprises. I'm Scott Colborn. We'll be back right after these messages with our guest, Paul Blake Smith. Jim Shorty, Scott Colborn, Paul Blake Smith, and you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. the blues in lincoln nebraska kzum lincoln and kzum hd 
Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. The KZUM Summer Concert Series runs every Thursday at 7 p.m. through August 1st at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. Join us in the great outdoors for food trucks and live music, this week by a pair of Lincoln bands, Gerardo Mesa and the Dead of Night, and The In-Betweens, plus food by Open Harvest. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Butheris Mazer and Love, and Shirts 101. That's this Thursday, June 6th, 7 p.m. at Stransky Park. Find out more on Facebook and kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty and you guys and gals along with our main guest, Paul Blake Smith. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. 34 years and counting. Another great program today. We started last week with Dennis Balthauser and the Roswell crash of 1947. And now we've got Paul Blake Smith. And we've been talking about the Cape Girardeau, Missouri crash of 1941. Paul, where do you want to pick it up at here? Well, let's see. We're in the crash site in the farm field, and Reverend Huffman and uh, some uh, outsiders came in. They surrounded the crash site and uh, hemmed everyone in, and it turned out to be the uh, Army Air Corps from a base about 35 miles south. Uh, it turns out that the Cape Girardeau uh, Sheriff uh, was quite familiar with Sykeston, Missouri, and uh, its uh, air training program associated with the uh, Air Corps in those days, just before the formation of uh, the Air Force. And uh, he had a brother who helped run this operation. So it seems pretty obvious that the Cape County Sheriff called his brother and described this aerial craft and a crash, and uh, we don't know what to do with this. 
can you come and uh, help us out? So they assembled a team and drove up uh, about 35 miles and saw the flames probably as well and hemmed in the crowd and asked them not to talk about this, give us every scrap of evidence. It's as if they were instructed by Washington, D.C., quite frankly. And it turns out that uh, Captain Root, who was in charge of this unit, had come directly from Washington to take over the Sykeston uh, Air uh, training program for the military uh, some months before. So he probably placed a few calls describing this, what was probably a crazy situation that no one had really encountered in this country before. Aliens or uh, outer space creatures is what they were called at the time. I talked to a one woman who said, uh, I lived on a farm a few miles south of Cape Girardeau, and there were some adults there. And I remember them talking about the outer space people who uh, died in uh, their little spacecraft. They didn't say UFO or alien or extraterrestrial back then. Mm -hmm. They just call them these little people from another world. Yep, outer space So she people. remembers that quite well, and I think that's an interesting point, that uh, UFOs and aliens were just not part of the popular culture in movies and TV shows or... Uh, there was almost no television in those days. And radio, uh, you might see Buck Rogers in a, a comic strip was about the best you can do. So it had to have been just an absolutely bizarre situation staring at these creatures and maybe not knowing what to do other than let's uh, hoist one up and pose for a photograph to show this really happened and show our neighbors. Well, that got squelched pretty quick as the story was shut down almost immediately. Reverend Huffman apparently was taken off to the side and sworn by an FBI man not to discuss this case. And it's rather amusing to know that as soon as he got home, he broke that oath and told his family, but then no one uh, outside his household ever since. Mm -hmm. well, we tend to, to look back into what would be recent history and tend to, to take along um, our standards of living, our accoutrements that we're used to, our technological abilities, and we mustn't do that because uh, this is 1941, it's rural Missouri. My grandparents that were in Superior, Nebraska, on a farm, they didn't receive electricity until the late 1940s. Uh, and they, they had a phone that was a party line type phone. Mm -hmm. uh, so some areas would not even have had a telephone. Uh, whether or not the, the farmer upon whose property this crashed had a phone or how they would have gotten to the nearest phone to call it in. So you've got kind of a number of, of wheels that are turning of the awareness that something's happened trying to report that, the people on that receiving end then making their own calls and getting that, that initial juggernaut moving of a response to this. Um, and so there are people out there, you mentioned a distant relative with the nickname of Frony that uh, may have been the person that's taken a picture did anything ever happen with that? Uh, any speculation? According to the Huffman family, Reverend Huffman was on his front porch about a week or ten days uh, after the crash, and Frony, Garland Fronabarger, uh, well, let's just say uh, the photographer in question, 
who we feel could be Garland Fronebarger, and there weren't that many in those days at the local newspaper, so it almost has to be him. Uh, he approached Reverend Huffman and said, look, I've developed this photograph from my box camera. I want you to have a copy. I have a copy, too. And Reverend Huffman apparently didn't really want it. It was a hot potato. But he took it and uh, tucked it away in his house, and it uh, existed in the Huffman family possessions uh, for uh, about a decade, a little over that. In the 1950s, they would get it out, and the Huffman family would show it to each other. Uh, by that time, they uh, had little uh, uh, grandchildren, and one of them was uh, Charlotte Huffman Mann, who told this story many years later. She would see the photograph of the alien that was propped up in the farm field, and it really gave her the creeps, and she's very curious, what's this all about? And the family would not tell her for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, Reverend Huffman died in 1959, and his widow, uh, Floyd Huffman, uh, was ill with cancer in the early 1980s, and she decided, uh, after much coaxing, to tell the story before she passed away, and she did. She told um, uh, Charlotte Huffman Mann, that uh, the tale happened uh, exactly as uh, we've discussed here, and Reverend Huffman said that night when he came home uh, pale and shaken from the uh, uh, crash incident. So uh, what happened to this photograph? It would be shown at parties. Well, in the early 1950s, the Huffman family was living in a small town in Kansas. An insurance man from across the street came over to a, a family party and said, uh, well, I'll take a look at this photograph. And he looked at it and said, I happen to know something about photography, and I've got a friend in, like, zoology or something like this, biology. Uh, let me take this photograph and show him. Well, the uh -oh. man disappeared and the photograph, and they never saw him since. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that was the end of that. It turns out this man had Army intelligence background. He uh, had uh, some real mysterious connections, and he passed away, I believe, in the uh, early uh, 90s, late 1990s, uh, living uh, not far from uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, about a mile away, actually, which is the story of many uh, recovered UFO crash uh, materials and, and uh, tales of uh, uh, alien uh, bodies being uh, inspected there. So it kind of adds up, although, uh, once again, we're piecing together uh, scraps and rumors and circumstantial evidence. Uh, uh, we can also look at uh, actual White House uh, Oval Office memorandums from Franklin Roosevelt that have been authenticated as genuine, in which he talks about these celestial wonders that have come to us, and that uh, these are to be considered affairs or uh, secrets uh, of state, and that he formed a non-terrestrial science and technology committee to look into it so without saying the word aliens or uh, spaceship in his memos to uh, his secretary to be dictated and sent around uh, we can pretty much gather what he was talking about in april of 41. Mm -hmm. uh, is that in either one of your books here? Yes I try to get to um, uh, Eisenhower, Eisenhower, Roosevelt's um, uh, memorandums and his uh, uh, it, directives to General George Marshall, his Army Chief of Staff, and what they were talking about uh, in those days. I get that in uh, uh, Mo 41, the bombshell before Roswell, and the sequel, Three Presidents and Two Accidents, which are still available from Argus Publishing, where shipping is free. I'll just get that <laughs> uh, quick plug in, <laughs> shamelessly. And then uh, mention that... Um, 
these documents uh, all, can also be uh, found and really lots of amazing stuff at um, www.majesticdocuments.com by an author named Ryan Wood. He and his father are very respected uh, researchers who have found just amazing material on what the government has uh, known for decades and has been discussing in private, and these documents have leaked, and they have uh, inspected and authenticated them. So I encourage people to go to that site for sure, learn more. Mm -hmm. The the uh, um, uh, rear of the, of the book, um, at the end of the book, you have in the appendix some of these documents that you've been referring to. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to the celestial wonder do you is there a way that you have that handy um i'm i'm trying to find this back here and it's either the smudge on my glasses or i can't i have it i must admit the printers printed like a scrunched in version and it is a little difficult to read in the uh, the back of the book um, what i find uh, most fascinating if I can interject it quickly, is sure. a confession by an Army intelligence officer in 1999. He had cancer also, and he wanted to confess uh, his career, that the American intelligence community had uh, a number of secrets. And the first secret he wanted to get out was there was an aerodyne that crashed in southern Missouri in 1941. It was the top thing at the time, and he wanted to tell this before he died. And I thought, boy, there's some more confirmation. Uh, uh, the man used the name uh, Thomas Cantwheel. Uh, they, they feel that that could be uh, a pseudonym to protect his identity and his family after he passed away. But uh, that was one thing he wanted to get off his chest, and I include that in the back of the book, too. That's on page 307. Yep. Um, so can you read any part of that uh, Roosevelt document where he talks about the celestial wonder? Uh, I might be able to. This is I live radio, folks, right and I'm putting the guest on the spot here. <laughs> yes. Uh, first, I don't have my reading glasses with me, so okay. there's a lame well, excuse. Yeah, don't, uh, don't worry have, about it then. Don't worry about it. All right. It. I have... Um, some notes here I could poke through, find the actual page blown up in full. I've got, can, the, uh, I've got the, this one's easier for me to read. This is President Roosevelt's February 1942 um, memo to General George Marshall regarding oh, yeah. better access to the MO41 alien recoveries. Um, may I read this short paragraph, Paul? Go right ahead, sir. Okay, this is dated uh, February 27th, 1942. Um, and this is from Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt. I have considered the disposition of the material in possession of the Army that may be of great significance towards the development of a super weapon of, a, of war. I disagree with the argument that such information should be shared with our ally, the Soviet Union consultation with Dr. Bush and other scientists on the issue of finding practical uses for the atomic secrets learned from study of celestial devices precludes any further discussion 
and I therefore authorize Dr. Bush to proceed with the project without further delay. This information is vital to the nation's superiority and must remain within the, con the confines of state secrets. Any further discussion on the matter will be restricted to uh, General Donovan, Dr. Bush, the Secretary of War, and yourself. This is to George Marshall. The challenge our nation faces is daunting and perilous in this undertaking, and I have um, committed the resources of the government towards that end. You have my assurance that when circumstances are favorable and we are victorious, the Army will have the fruits of research in exploring further applications of this new wonder. Um, so he refers to study of celestial devices. Right. What, you know, you don't study like a meteorite or a rock that fell. I mean, this is his way of telegraphing without stating it directly as a, as a state secret. You can't come out and say mm -hmm. it, not in front of a dictated memo that could get passed around. So he had to put it into uh, certain terms, but we can understand uh, as he refers to this new wonder that we've uh, uncovered. And another one, uh, FDR says, I want to thank you in coming to grips with the reality that our planet is not the only one harboring intelligent life in the universe. This is another FDR memorandum. Well, once again, that can't be a rock or an asteroid or a meteorite. Uh, this is, in, he literally says, intelligent life and uh, to take advantage of these new wonders that have come to us. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can see that FDR was... Um, discussing this with his top people but he wanted it kept hushed as you as you emphasize uh, he he only wanted this discussed at the top level with dr van ever bush his top scientist the secretary of war stimson and general uh, donovan who was in charge of uh, intelligence matters jim how are you up for uh how are you up for reading something well i can give it a try okay this is this is the final um entry in the appendix um and Jim, if you could read uh, that document. Okay, it's a uh, national security structure. There's some redacted areas, obviously. Uh, with the passage of the National Security Act of 1947, redacted is presented an unprecedented situation with regard to maintaining secrecy related to the information contained in this report. In the early months of 1942, up until the present, intrusions of unidentified aircraft have occasionally been documented. But there's been no serious investigations by the intelligence arm of the government. Even the recovery case of 1941 did not create a unified intelligence effort to exploit possible technological gains with the exception of the Manhattan Project. We now have an opportunity to extend our technology beyond the threshold that we have achieved. Um, redacted, and aside from the technological gains, uh, as we face an even greater challenge, that of learning the intent of such a presence. There are questions that remain unanswered, such as what forces face us, 
What kind of defense do we have? Where do they come from and what kind of weapons do they possess? Where can we stage our forces in advance and redacted? How wide a front? How many craft can we expect? And then the rest is redacted. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, Jim, you did a good job there. Thank you. This is a little challenging in a couple of spots, but not too bad. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, the final entry here, General Nathan Twining's September 1947, uh, quote-unquote, white-hot report reference. And they reference in this, Paul, the recovery case of 1941. Yeah, what else could it be? In a blacked-out area, I have put uh, in letters to uh, compare to the blacked-out area, and uh, from the Missouri fits perfectly where Mm. the sentence would read, this conclusion was reached as a result of comparisons of artifacts from the Missouri discovery of 1941. Even with you uh, blacking that out, the government doing so, uh, what else could they possibly be referring to when the overall report is discussing this extraterrestrial uh, evidence that they have recovered from uh, Roswell and the New Mexico desert floor in 1947. And it makes these references repeatedly to the recovery case of 1941. Gee, I wonder what that could be. So uh, we have that going for us, but as uh, you and your uh, partner note, there are redactions here and there, and uh, it's difficult to um, say absolutely this is smoking gun, but it's pretty darn close, isn't it? This is Paul Blake Smith and the uh, appendix that we were just talking about, the document is in the book MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell. The book runs in excess of 300 pages, and it is exhaustive in terms of Paul trying to track down, run down uh, the people, the events, how they link together uh, regarding this Cape Girardeau UFO crash of 1941. And when we come back from our bottom-of-the-hour break, let's talk about um, what you learned that led you to the writing of the second book as a follow-up, Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data and Surprises. Um, If you're interested in UFO crashes, both these books should be in your library. I'm just going to leave it right there. I'm Scott Colborn with Paul Blake Smith. Jim Shorty's here. And Jim, I'm ready for some more coffee. How are we doing? I, I thought that's what you were asking, but I wanted to. We still to make have sure. some there? We'll take care of that. Paul, uh, I don't know if I've asked you this. Are you a coffee or a tea guy? Uh, believe it or not, I've never had uh, much taste for either. I have a nice glass of water here that needs refilling during our break, so that'll be my liquid refreshment. No stimulants for Mr. Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, water's good for you, too. Okay. You know, he's living a good life there. Uh, But, boy, I tell you what, this coffee is going down good. Uh, It's our pleasure to have Paul Blake Smith with us. We've got more to come. You guys and gals, please stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Danny can 
Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues with listings here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, June 1st, Acoustic Rooster starts at 8 at Bailey's Local. The Bel Airs play the Zoo Bar at 6. And Unchain My Art features over 25 performers and live art at Bodegas, The Zoo, 1867, Duffy's and the Bourbon, beginning at 8, with all proceeds benefiting KZUM. On Sunday, June 2nd, the Playmore Ballroom's Country Night features McKenzie Jalen at 8, with dancing lessons at 7, and Zularius brings stand-up back to the Zoo Bar at 8 p.m. That is live music happening this week in Lincoln. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. And coming up right after our program at 12 noon is my buddy, Eddie Rumbaugh. And Ed Rumbaugh has got uh, a program coming to us of Beta Radio. And he's going to play some jazzy blues uh, this afternoon for us. So uh, I used to golf many years ago, and Ed Rumbaugh could hit the golf ball farther than any human being that I've ever been around. It was amazing to watch. When we were out at uh, Pioneer's Golf Course on the driving range, he would traditionally hit the ball <laughs> onto, the, onto the county road. <laughs> That's a long ways, folks. Um, next week, uh, following this discussion with Paul Blake Smith, um, I want to then bring into this conversation Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, who back in 1968 wrote the book, The Bible and Flying Saucers. And we'll continue this discussion, albeit in a theological uh, setting, with uh, Reverend Downey next week. Looking forward to that show as well. Paul Blake Smith, uh, who makes his home in Springfield, Missouri, is with us this morning. And uh, to follow up on this book, which was exhaustive, MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, in its scope and intent, Paul continued to get information and reports and run things down that resulted in a second book called Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data and Surprises. And Paul, without uh, trying to, to read this book, uh, what would be an example of one of the things that you felt warranted a follow-up book? What, what did you learn? 
Uh, I had a Facebook page, and I still do, uh, called Cape Girardeau's 1941 UFO Accident, America's First. And people would uh, chime in with what they have heard. And one story was from a man who said, my mother was friends with a man I call Rusty Blevins. I put this in the second book. He told my mother all about he was a farmhand on the farm where it took place, and he saw the crash. He saw the explosive wow. fireball go up and thought, oh, my gosh, i got to do something. So he rushed to the nearest house. And he used a phone, and as you point out, they were rare in those days, and you might have had to interrupt a party line to contact an operator who would then put you through to uh, what you wanted. And uh, he eventually got through to the Cape Girardeau Police Department, which shared their building in those days with the fire department. So everyone would have come out in mass in that manner and reacted very quickly because we didn't have crashes and big accidents. It wasn't a major city. Uh, I'm sure uh, it's quite possible doctors and, and nurses were contacted as well, thinking there were going to be human bodies in states of disrepair or death. Uh, it's just so tough for me, 70-plus years later, to find actual witnesses. In many cases, the, uh, the, the children of the witnesses are gone. So that was one story I wanted to add. Another was a man who told me that he heard of a second crash site that night at a, somebody's front yard in Cape Girardeau, about a mile aerial uh, away from the uh, farmland crash site. And it was a metallic object, uh, not uh, very large, but that uh, it was something that uh, a very upstanding conservative family who was living in this uh, somewhat upscale home and they don't want to talk about it so there's another frustrating story uh, that uh, another man told me that in 1946 five years after the crash he uh, was told by his uncle who was there at the time that a circular disc came down uh, just a few blocks from this secondary crash site and alien creatures got out and were walking around an open field and uh, a crowd of human beings started to gather. They would stop on the street and pull over and uh, eventually the police were called and said, keep back, just leave them alone. Uh, let them uh, do whatever they want out in that field. And no one was quite sure. And at one point, these uh, human-like creatures got back in their ship and it took off. Well, that's an allegation. I can't find one darn bit of proof that it ever happened or any newspaper story. So uh, it would be making sense if they came back to the uh, actual crash area, maybe looking for debris or bodies themselves. Uh, but I have no um, particular evidence that it occurred. But I put that in the book. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, I try to cram in as much information to make sure the reader gets his money's worth. Uh, I got so tired of picking up UFO books, and they're uh, somewhat flimsy, and they make up wild allegations. They get car carried away, and they don't reference uh, their sources or their um, uh, their facts. And, and I try to avoid all of that and give people something that uh, actually happened then that can be backed up. And that's why I have so many uh, resource mentions uh, in the back of the book or during the course of the book. Mm -hmm. and, and Paul then... Uh I think correctly speculates that if if this crash took place in Cape Girardeau, 1941, that word would have gotten fairly quickly back to Washington and to probably Franklin, 
Delanor Roosevelt. Right. And so Paul has uh, meticulously researched FDR's schedule and some of the government goings-on during that time period uh, so that you've also got that to look at. Uh, you know, if, if this event took place, is there anything unusual going on um, at or just after that in his schedule? What? Right. Uh, FDR normally turned turned in for the night around ten thirty, ten forty five, but on that Saturday night, uh, the records show he didn't go upstairs to his bedroom until after midnight, as if he'd been fielding calls that evening. And he was with an army officer. Uh, they were having dinner that night in the White House with a couple of uh, friends, and that's probably when phone calls came in asking, "What do we do?" Uh, obviously, the president is the commander-in-chief and in charge of the armed forces, and the army was all over the ground in Cape Girardeau handling this, and they had to have orders. So this was an unprecedented, unprecedented situation, and FDR was uh, up late. He went to his bedroom where he had two uh, private phone lines, and he could have continued making calls. Uh, the next morning was Easter morning, and it's very interesting to know that as a Freemason, a uh, very hardcore Freemason, uh, FDR always went to the sunrise service by the Knights Templar in Washington, D.C. at Arlington Cemetery. He did not go the next morning. And uh, he, did, uh, he did show up at church with Eleanor around 11 o'clock the next day, and he had very little on his official schedule for a Sunday. But just a couple of days later, some of the biggest big shots in the FDR administration in his military and the science uh, uh, source that we uh, referenced earlier, Dr. Mm -hmm. Van Everbush, all came into the Oval Office one by one and had uh, closed door, uh, in some cases off the record discussions as pointed out in the president's existing uh, White House logs. This was most unusual. It's the kind of reaction you would expect to something of this magnitude and of course hushed up. The next president in line then is uh, Harry Truman. Paul, where was Harry from? Harry was from the um, Kansas City area, but he spent 1906 living in Cape Girardeau, believe it or not, and training with the Army around the Mississippi River area, uh, learning to scale bluffs, learning to attack and assault as uh, Army soldiers are uh, trained to do so. There was an Army um, reserve camp in Cape Girardeau then, and there still is to this day. So Harry was quite familiar with Cape Girardeau. During the crash, he was actually in Washington, suffering some mysterious pains in his chest. And at first they thought maybe it was a heart attack, but later they felt it was just gallstones. Mm -hmm. So uh, just days later, Harry met with uh, General George Marshall, who on the night of the crash was supposed to fly to an army base in Georgia. But I looked up his records, and they show that he apparently abruptly pulled out of this tour that Saturday night. So it all kind of fits together that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was suddenly had it, having her flight canceled that night, and she had to stick to the ground in a train to go to Washington and make it to the White House for Easter Sunday. And Harry Truman was around, and he wanted to interview George Marshall, who also was apparently uh, having his schedule disrupted. So everything points to Saturday night, April 12th, as the night in question. That's my best guess. Uh, I believe it's accurate. Uh, I want to point out that um, 
Uh, Linda Wallace is a very fine researcher in this subject, too, and she has a website called SeekingMoInfo.com. You can learn more there. Uh, she does not give a specific uh, a date, but I feel uh, confident in my two books. I've produced enough information that we can pinpoint that as the night of the crash. I went to Linda's website last night, Paul, and it's been, uh, at least the version I looked at, revamped. There's basically only a, a link to um, send her a, a an email. Uh, no other pages were visible, none that I could access through my computer last night. Oh, I'm surprised and disappointed. Um, she used to have a, a very fine website, and that's why I reference it. I have not seen it over the last month or so, so you may be correct that, that something has happened and it's been taken down or <laughs> censored, or maybe she's just tired of the story. I don't know. Uh, that's very interesting. You... Uh, she produced a book called Covert Retrieval. Uh, her father was part of the um, aerial training program in Sykeston, and she heard little tidbits of the story over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a different angle from the Sykeston, Missouri uh, recovery uh, team, apparently, uh, that angle down there. Her mm-hmm. father may have been part of it or maybe not, but knew some things. And, uh, well, if you read her book, uh, she produces some very fine information. Now, if you ever run across a copy of that book, Paul, um, hopefully you're going to remember your friend up here in Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> I've had Paul. I, I read it only in Kindle, and it was given to me free. So uh, <laughs> I've had Paul do uh, a, 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 a yeah. book purchase for me that uh, I, I sure appreciate. So, uh, in, let's say that um, FDR knew about this. When do you think Truman found out? Uh, It's tough to say, but uh, here's where things get more mysterious. Harry Truman was the uh, top Freemason, the Grand Master Freemason for the state of Missouri. The mayor of Cape Girardeau was a Knights Templar Freemason who was friends with Harry Truman. So uh, FDR was a Freemason. The vice president at the time was Henry Wallace. He was a 33-degree Freemason. They keep a lot of secrets. They are interested in uh, astronomy, celestial uh, uh, subjects, including uh, the possibility of life beyond Earth, as I understand it, and even have some artwork and murals that include this. So uh, there's a a whole chain of command that could have gone from Cape Girardeau to the state capitol, possibly, certainly to Washington, D.C., the head of the FBI was obviously made aware at one point, and that was J. Edgar Hoover, and he was a Freemason. So they knew how to uh, connect and uh, keep secrets between them, and this would have been a, a big one to uh, discuss behind closed doors. But again, the American public just was felt not ready to hear and learn this stuff. And it was also important to see if we could turn this uh, material that was found on the ground into some sort of super weapon of war, as you mentioned in that FDR memorandum. We needed every advantage we could because uh, it looked like war was imminent and things were looking bad for democracy and our allies around the world in uh, April 1941. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got to tell you just a funny short story here about uh, uh, Masons. So my late father, Robert Colborn, God bless you, Dad, was a, a Mason. And um, my mom was always curious about what happened because they were all secretive. <laughs> and so one of mom's and dad's old friends decided to play a practical joke. And so he said, you know, Gentry, 
all I can tell you is that after one of these meetings, see if you can look at Bob's little toes. She said, little toes? He said, that's all I can say. And so she had this elaborate thing when dad came home from the Sonic meeting of saying, you know, honey, you've just been on your feet all day here. Let me take your shoes off <laughs> and your socks and give your feet a good massage. And Dad said, Gentry, what are you doing? I'm looking at your little toes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, My grandfather was a Freemason in St. Louis, and uh, I understand Harry Truman would occasionally stop by there and in Cape Girardeau uh, at the Masonic Temple when he would be out campaigning and meet with other um, uh, Freemasons in, you know, in private. And they, uh, they have their own secret handshake and uh, greeting and even uh, can speak to each other in a kind of coded language. That shows you how extensive this is. Uh, I'll point out quickly that my other grandfather was city attorney of Cape Girardeau for many years. And a year or two before the crash, my father and my aunt uh, talked him into giving up that job because he kept having to leave the house on legal matters and affairs with the uh, Cape Girardeau Police Department. So if they just hadn't talked him out of this, my grandfather probably would have been called to the crash site that night and uh, would have had the whole story. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he did not. Uh, he did not mention it uh, within my family. It's another frustrating uh, connection. And it, while we're on the topic of uh, Freemasons, Rush Limbaugh I, the grandfather of the famous broadcaster, was a leading Freemason in Cape Girardeau, and he may have known the whole story. Uh, I'm told Rush has mentioned to people that he heard the Cape Girardeau UFO crash when he was uh, in high school in the 1960s. That's when he first learned it. The famous broadcaster Rush Limbaugh, folks, is right. also from Cape Girardeau. Um, so finally, uh, uh, one last question about these three presidents. Um, John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was in Stanford University at the time of the crash. He wanted to join the uh, Army, and he failed his physical. He joined the Navy, and somehow he landed smack dab in a uh, Navy intelligence headquarters handling some of the most secretive documents. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, it, it seems as though the president's own personal physician, a Navy admiral, was going to be assigned the autopsy of the aliens. Now, that's through uh, logical conjecture, I'll admit. But if the Navy did handle that, it would have been in Naval Intelligence reports. And JFK was known to be a bit of a party boy who liked to go out with lots of ladies and tell them things. And eventually, uh, Kennedy's phone was tapped, and he too was being followed by the FBI, rather like that Cape Girardeau fireman who was talking too much or was felt that he could. So I included that in the chapter. And there's another, I could have titled the book Four Presidents, because I will mention quickly that the president or prime minister of Canada, uh, he was a very close friend of Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, that Sunday afternoon after the crash, he told the media that he had to suddenly go to Washington and meet with President Roosevelt. And he took a train, stayed on the ground. And days later, he showed up. His name is in these White House logs as meeting with FDR and uh, with these other military and administrative big shots. And it's uh, important to preface this, that uh, not only were the two Canadian and American presidents Freemasons, that uh, uh, the 
Canada Prime Minister had a tremendous interest in the paranormal, and he would attend seances and with Ouija boards, and he wanted know, to know all about the meaning of life and uh, probably life beyond Earth. So it makes a lot of sense that uh, we can speculate reasonably that FDR called him and said, you're not going to believe what we've recovered and had moved to Washington, mm -hmm. uh, and that's why he showed up when he did. Now, folks, as we did with Dennis last week, um, I'd like to... Uh, leave you at the end of the show with this, that um, Paul has done a, a great job in unearthing the story of what happened in Cape Girardeau in 1941. There are still people out there, family members, family histories, that have yet to be discovered that may have information about this. If you folks listening live or uh, uh, via the archive of the program. If you know anything more about the crash in Missouri in 1941 outside Cape Girardeau, uh, please contact Paul Blake Smith. And Paul, what's the easiest way that people can reach you? You can go to my Facebook page or uh, especially to my special uh, Cape Girardeau's UFO crash Facebook page and leave a message there and I'll get uh, right back to you. Uh, you can go to my website also, and it has an email address at that point. And that website, again, is mo41.info. Right. Okay, Paul, uh, what's in store for you for the rest of the weekend? I will continue to, even though the book is finished, I will continue to look up a little bit of information on President Eisenhower and how uh, he may well have snuck away to make history. Uh, in February of 1954 and uh, in his Palm Springs golf vacation and I will uh, continue to research that even though the book is finished and has been submitted uh, it seems a little like uh, closing the uh, barn door after the horse is gone but it's such a fascinating topic and I find little bits and pieces to research so I'll be doing more of that along with my laundry sounds pretty exciting doesn't it? <laughs> Hey, thank you so much, Paul, for being with us today. It's always a pleasure, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing more when you land this book deal. I want to have you back on the program just as soon as it's published. That new book coming out sometime this year is President Eisenhower's Close Encounters. Okay, Paul, thank you so much. All the best to you and your family. Well, thank you, and I hope everyone enjoys reading these uh, incredible fact-filled tales. Paul Blake Smith, the author of multiple books, including MO41, The Bombshell Before Roswell, and Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO Crash Data and Surprises. Uh, with us in the studio is my buddy Ed Rumbaugh. And, Ed, um, what do you have going on today? Uh, well, I'm going to do a, a beta show from uh, 12 o'clock until 1 o'clock, playing some nice jazz, jazz and blues. Cool. Even some guitar players in there. I allow them in. Cool. Some, <laughs> some jazzy blues, huh? That's correct. And okay. then at 2 o'clock, I'm having my gutters cleaned. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Hey, so uh, isn't the sunlight great? Yeah, you're going to like the forecast. Yeah, the, the sunlight's great. It's a little warm. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm a polar bear, you know, but I'm going to put up with being warm for a while because we really need this to dry out. 
It's currently 78 and sunny, and there's no rain in the forecast until Monday afternoon. Good. Good, 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 good. Okay, guys and gals, Ed Rumbaugh's up next with beta... <laughs> with there are always surprises in live radio. This is, yeah, this is called mess with the host. I almost got bonked. With Ed Rumbaugh's next with Beta Radio with some jazz and blues, and uh, thank you so much for taking part, folks, in the KZUM Radio Give to Lincoln fundraiser. Yeah. We did just over thirty-six thousand dollars. Thank you so much, and that's going to help us a lot because all the folks nonprofits that took part in that mm-hmm. fundraiser now get a percentage of about $440,000. So uh, as to what I'm going to do, I'm going to go eat lunch and then I'm going to play some guitar today. I think that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Sit in air-conditioned comfort and make noise. <laughs> there we go. Okay, Jim, and what are you doing? Uh, my, my aspirations aren't quite so high, but... Uh, I think I'm just going to go home and enjoy some radio. Okay. Coming up next week is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, The Bible and Flying Saucers. It's being reprinted this year. He's got a brand-new introduction. We'll be talking about uh, what's ensued since 1968. He is a Presbyterian minister, very interested in the theological questions of life elsewhere and us and how we relate through that that lens so looking forward to that thank you so much for listening stay tuned for eddie and beta radio i'm scott colborn with jim shorney thank you so much for listening until next week walk in beauty <laughs>